This is the Mornington Peninsula Regional Galleries Conversation Series, Episode 12. We are talking to artist Andrew Hayeswinkle. Hello and welcome to the Mornington Peninsula Regional Galleries Conversation Series, a podcast for people curious about art and the lives of artists. In this episode, Senior Curator Danny Lacey talks to artist Andrew Hazelwinkle about his exhibition, What the Sea Never Told. This project takes as its starting point the 1892 Mornington Football Club tragedy, where 15 young men from Mornington drowned whilst returning from playing a game of football against the township of Mordialic. Andrew talks candidly about this ambitious project that he developed over a period of three years. Discover more about Andrew's work for the exhibition, which included an epic new video installation, unique Cibachrome photographs, and an artist publication that reflects on and remembers Australia's worst sporting tragedy. Thanks for joining us today, Andrew. Thanks, Tony. It's nice to be here. Can I start by asking you, how did you first become interested in art? That's a tricky question. Um, well... My family uh, is from the Netherlands, first-generation Australian, and at a very important age, at the age when most people's memories start to be laid down in a way that they can recall them. For me, this was about the age of five to six. And when I was at that very age, between the ages of five and six, my parents took my entire family, the seven of us, I have two brothers and two sisters, back to the Netherlands to meet grandparents and the extended family. But for a young boy that I was, I had an extraordinary experience and I still have all of these really powerful visual memories of looking at paintings that we went to see and remember approaching certain buildings that we then saw those paintings in and civic sculptures in places. So I guess that you could say my earliest exposure, which led to my interest in art, was connected to both family and a sense of place that I was not growing up in. Then upon return to Australia, when we moved down to the peninsula shortly after this, there were, as you can imagine, books laying around at home reproductions of Vermeers and Rembrandts and Dutch masters. My parents were artistically patriotic, though not particularly involved in the arts in any way. The project that you're presenting at the NPRG, What the Sea Never Told, is an ambitious and large-scale project that you've been working on for a number of years. Can you talk a little bit about the elements that make up this project and then discuss... I guess, the process of making this work over the the last couple of years. Sure. Look, thank you for describing it as an ambitious project. I hope I've delivered on that. It's been a really important project for me to make and in some ways the most challenging project that I've ever made. Not challenging so much in the technical aspect of making the three elements that comprise the project in its entirety, but more the emotional involvement with the project. So the project is presented as three elements, a large-scale kind of epic proportion, 15-minute multi-channel video work, a suite of four ilfochrome or cibachrome photographs, which are a metre by a metre square, 
and a modest publication as well. Now, given the historiographic nature of the story, it was important for me that the works remained very much anchored in the contemporary domain, but connected to and clearly emerging from the past. So with that in mind, I developed a strategy very early on in the project. Of The first aspect was that nowhere would I include images of either boats or bodies because as soon as we started to introduce those elements, it was probable that the work would become anchored in a particular period of time. And I wanted the work to somehow resonate with the permanence and the, shall we say, agelessness of the sea, to imbue the story with that sense of the agelessness of the sea and the awe of the sea. So it also meant that by focusing literally on the surface of the water and just beneath the surface of the water and the sky above the water, that the work could occupy both the contemporary domain and the past without any sense of nostalgia. Yeah, I think the work articulates a very contemporary viewpoint using a very historical context or story. I know we've spoken a lot over the last little bit about this project and worked together quite closely on the development of this project. Mm. Can you talk about the audience for you or who you've made this work for? Yeah, absolutely. It's a really important aspect of the work. Sometimes when you're making projects, making artworks, you think about who's going to be looking at that, engaging with it. And sometimes you imagine what people might feel when they're engaging with what you've made. In this instance, however, I decided very early on, another decision that was taken early on, was that the real audience for this work was the 15 young men who had lost their lives. And I kept that idea really close throughout the whole process which as you suggested before has been a number of years so even on a practical level when I was making a decision about how to make a particular cut in the video for argument's sake and what that cut represented emotionally how it made you feel when you paid it back on screen and I would then think about okay so how would the lads feel about this and tried to imagine how they would feel about it so the audience for me has been the 15 dead young men. I'm aware that might sound very strange because in a way memorials tend to be made for the living who remain with their sense of loss as a reminder. And this project is memorial in its inception but it is driven by a different impulse and that impulse comes from the idea that it is made not about the 15 young men who lost their lives but for the 15 young men who lost their lives, in the sense that perhaps in the same way that they continue to haunt the collective consciousness of Mornington and the broader peninsula, that maybe in that haunting there is the opportunity to pay homage for them, to them, to include them. The video work in the exhibition is an epically proportioned work, sitting in the gallery looking at this 15-metre-wide dual-screen projection It really flows over you and around you and the soundtrack in particular adds an extra layer to the work. Can you talk a little bit more about the video work in particular and also the soundscape that goes with that work? The scale of the video is really significant 
because often when we talk about video works, we think of them as discrete images on a screen. And the scale that we're talking about here is that of the cinema. We're all familiar with going to the cinema. And when we go into the cinema, we enter into a darkened chamber where we suspend the reality of what we use to negotiate our day-to-day lives and allow other stories to affect us in different ways. In some way, when an image is so large and immersive and you're in a darkened space, it allows you to step away from the day-to-day reality of your world and think about a story in a different way and then take those feelings back out into the day-to-day world. So the scale was really important on that psychological level, but the immersiveness of the imagery was also really important to me. I mean, in the making of it, there were times when I would, with a GoPro in hand, go swimming at night to capture material that is then on the screen. There were all sorts of practical strategies for filming from different kinds of boats, different sizes of boats, different weights of boats that move through the water at different times. And I wanted, particularly thinking about the handheld GoPro material, you know, snorkeling during the daytime or swimming at night, I wanted to try to create the opportunity for people to have a sense of being in the water. And scale is important in that regard because, again, when we take ourselves into the sea, when we go swimming at the beach or anything, we take our body and we immerse it in another body. We immerse it in a body of water, which is much larger than our own. And then we're kind of suspended in it. It supports us. We float. So it's not threatening in any way to have ourselves somehow made diminutive in this gigantic scale of the sea. And I wanted to try to bring that sense, that almost ineffable sense, into the gallery. The sound component, the audio, somehow it, for me, feels not enough to call it sound or audio. It's an exquisite composition, an arrangement, which is a collaboration. I call it a collaboration with the composer David Fransky, and it's always an honour to work with David, and it's largely his work. But the starting point for it, it's a real haunting track. And without that sense of the haunting, the imagery becomes something else completely. But there is a really powerful element to it, which is connected to the direct facts of the event that is the source of this project. And that is that one of the young men who lost his life, Willie Coles, he played a cornet and he played a tune as the process sailed out, process the boat that they were sailing on that went down, that they lost their lives aboard. As that sailed out of Mornington for Morty Alec, he played a popular tune of the day, which is called somewhat prophetically, The Ship That Never Returned. So when it came to David and I beginning to make the composition, I found a really early recording of that track. And I just gave it to Dave and said, hey, here's a starting point. It's a tune from the period. It's a tune connected, a melody connected with the actual event itself. What do you think? How might we work with it? And it became the inception. So in the same way that the tune in some way launched the journey of the boat, it also launched the way David and I approached composing the arrangement. We took it, we put it into a digital program. I'm not completely au fait with all of the software packages that David uses. And then what we did was we stretched it digitally and then we wove it 
in volume up and down around a series of other sounds like there's an exquisite crystalline high pitch sound that kind of reverberates somehow in the front of your mind at times and then at other times it hovers in the back of your mind you can barely hear it so there is this constant rearrangement of a series of sounds and these are all woven around the ship that never returned curiously the cornet that he played on sadly Willie Cole his body was never found but his cornet washed up several weeks later down at Sorrento Mm. Can you talk a little bit about the amazing, luscious photographs within your exhibition? It'd be great to hear about how you actually came by these. It's quite rare these days to have analogue photography and especially the zebrachrome prints that you have. Yeah, the photographs in the exhibition are another world into themselves in the way that they connect with history in a different way. They can be considered contemporary photographic artefacts in that many people will never have heard of this photographic type, a type of print called cibachrome that were around for a long time, but particularly famous, big, glossy, juicy images in the 90s. They're now called Ilford Chromes because Ilford was the company that continued to make the paper for a while, which is now ceased. They no longer produce that paper, which is why they can be considered contemporary artefacts. Whilst once upon a time, if you wanted to make a zebrachrome, it was easy. You would shoot transparency, you would get the transparency processed, and you would go to any number of labs here in Melbourne, Sydney, anywhere in Australia, anywhere in the world to have them printed. Cibachromes have a particular quality, a particular chromatic quality. And this is something that I wanted to work with. There are certain films which favour the cool end of the spectrum. And because I knew that I would be a photographic films, I mean, and because I was going to be photographing the surface of the sea a long way from land, I wanted to work with a certain lusciousness of chroma in the prints that in some ways had a visual distance from the rest of the visual world that we more regularly inhabit on a day-to-day basis. And that meant looking at processes which are less common today. So when it came to wanting to make some cibachromes, quite an extraordinary thing happened. Firstly, I shot those images out in Bass Strait between two small sets of islands in February this year. So there are the surface of the sea out in Bass Strait, and the title of the works is the coordinates of the exact location where they're photographed between the Hogan's and the Deal Islands. When coming back to Melbourne to get them processed, no one in Melbourne could process them, so I had to send the films to Sydney to be processed. Whilst they were being processed in Sydney, I started my quest to try and find someone still printing cibachromes. I knew that I'd be able to find someone, but I didn't know how hard it would be. And what was remarkable was that as friends and colleagues whose work involves photography, when I caught up with them or bumped into them and I said that I was trying to make some cibachromes and did they know anyone who was still printing, most people said no, but we have friends in Istanbul or we have friends in Amsterdam, we have friends in Berlin and They might know people who work photographically and they might know. So there was this rippling effect from my desire to make zebrachromes that all of a sudden I was getting emails from people in Istanbul and emails from people in Amsterdam going, no, we don't know any labs that still do it, but you could talk to this lab 
in uh, Dusseldorf. So I would send an email to Dusseldorf to try and find out where I might be able to print these. Anyway, at the end of the day, after coming to a dead end time after time after time after time, I found one lab in Los Angeles, Lab Seba, run by a guy called Frank Green. And Frank's been continuously printing Cibachromes and not doing anything else for about 40 years. So I sent to him the transparencies and he did test prints and then sent me photographs. You know, it was an iPhone approval process because he was printing test prints, shooting them on his phone, sending me the images and I was trying to judge. And you can imagine when you're trying to judge colour across distance and across multiple platforms of photography, the process involved a lot of trust. And initially I was very nervous and uncomfortable about that, not the trust, but working with someone who I hadn't worked with before. And then I just eased into it. And this reality of letting go of control and this reality of surrendering into a different kind of trust pulses through the entire project, but particularly the photographs. Mm -hmm. And the third element within the exhibition is this amazing artist book, this amazing publication that I guess captures elements of the research that you've undertaken over these last few years towards this project. Can you talk about, I guess, the production of this book and some of the elements within that? I'd like to start off by suggesting that a project of this duration and of this personal significance and working as closely as we have together has afforded all sorts of possibilities being explored and developed and then at the last minute having to turn towards something else. There was another element planned for the exhibition, which was going to be the third element. And this was a kind of soft monument. This was the idea of not a stone monument that you stand in front of, but the idea of a carpet that was to fill one of the galleries. And what that carpet was doing was it was the artwork which would articulate the really remarkable empathic social phenomena that was launched by this disaster. It was the artwork that would talk about all of the individuals and all of the sporting clubs and all of the brass bands and circuses and fish salesmen associations, all these people who came together to support the bereaved families who had lost the men in their lives in this disaster. So the third artwork was always going to be about from the disaster on into the future. And in the small publication, which is the final third element, at the back of that there is an image which is the design for a proposition for a monument. So the carpet is included in the book. But for a number of reasons, we went a long way down the track of developing that artwork. It was finally designed after a much long and involved work of a number of people. But then at the very last minute, it couldn't go ahead and that meant that for me, as an artist, it was disappointing not to have that carpet realised, of course, as an artwork, but there was something else. There was all of a sudden a hole in the project. And the hole in the project meant that there was a part of the story which was not being delivered, which was not being made available. Because of the three elements in the project, none articulate the entire story in totality. 
the three elements come together and it is in the dialogue and the exchange between each of those three elements, the photographs, the video and now the publication, that reveal the full dimension of the story that is at the inception of this project. So that's a long way of coming around to the fact that really what the book does and the way it exists, it occupies a territory which is quite different from an exhibition catalogue and quite different from a historical text. It borrows from both of those in the way the language is written in it because there is a long discussion published in it between you and I, Danny, about different aspects of the work. There is installation images and imagery of the photographs and also stills from the video. But most importantly, what it does is it pays homage to all of these groups that supported the people of Mornington and who were involved in 1892 in the disaster. And I wanted to involve them again or give them the opportunity, invite them to be involved in this contemporary telling of the story. One of the things I did through hours of research online, uh, wonderful Trove platform, was I identified that approximately 60 organisations had come to the aid of Mornington back in 1892. And I then went on to discover that approximately 50 of those 60 still exist, remarkably. So I wrote to them all. And with those letters, I included copies of the newspaper articles which referred to their clubs. I started to wonder whether they knew that in the very founding days of their ongoing sporting clubs was this deep kind of empathy. In these letters, I asked through inviting them to participate, to send me any team photographs they had from around that period or any club graphics, any sorts of memorabilia. And many did, many organisations, sporting clubs, some big famous ones now, some really tiny ones, sent me photographs of teams from around the period and other material. And that material, everybody that provided material, is included in this book, not just in the list of supporters and not just in the lists of acknowledgements, but also there is page after page after page after page after page of team photographs from around that period. Teams of young men coming together to play football, much like the 15 young men who had lost their lives. I find them remarkable images. Many of them are incredibly beautiful images. And as someone who works photographically and writes around the history of photography, I can't help but kind of stare into the faces of these young men and think all sorts of things. But one of the things that I think about is the fact that for many of them, it was probably the very first time they were photographed. And for many of them, one of the only times they would be photographed in their life. I mean, it's a particular period in history where cameras and photography were more associated with a, a more wealthy aspect of society. They're kind of certainly the working class and the middle class and the working classes had very little exposure, no pun intended, to photography. And somehow that democratisation of photography is articulated in those photographs, strangely enough, through sport. You've been working on this project for a number of years now. I'd love to hear your reflections, thinking back on that period of time it has taken such a huge amount of time to pull this exhibition together and make these works. 
I know you spent a bit of time down at the Artist in Residency down at Portsea as far back as 2016. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, it goes way back to, to 2016, you're right. That was the first time at the residency. I'd love to hear your reflections on the project with the ability now to be able to look back on those last few years. I remember a really good piece of advice that I was given when I was at art school by a mentor that I had. And he said, Andrew, if you make things that take a long time to make, make things simultaneously that are really quick if you're making things at a really big scale, make simultaneously things that are of an intimate scale. Always work across the full spectrum of whatever it is that you're doing, be it temporally, be it in terms of scale or any other aspect. And I guess that's something that I I don't always keep front of mind, but listening to your question, it's made me reflect on that. Working on a project for this amount of time And a lot of that time was spent planning and thinking. Woven into it are works, individual works, which are literally captured in a one hundredth of a second. You know, so practically, mechanically, things were happening at a very fast rate within a spectrum that was very, very, very slow. There is also this thing of when you're working on a project for this amount of time, things happen in your own life. Things happen around you and things happen to you. And those things invariably become woven into your project, your work, if the work is open. So I think that given that this is one of the longest projects that I've worked on, I think that there is a certain resonance embedded in that of just my day-to-day life changes over the last three years. Also, when you're thinking about the loss of people's lives, there is this sense of finality or ending and not an ongoingness. So in a way, working on a project which was ongoing for three years about something which was so much about an abrupt and unexpected ending set up a certain dialectic that could be articulated both consciously and unconsciously in the making and presentation of the work. I mean, one of the things that's afforded about such a long duration and having the opportunity to plan for so long and then make and remake and remake and remake, because although the video work is 15 minutes long, there were hours and hours and hours of footage captured for it. And that wasn't just the physical editing process of, I don't want to use that image or I don't want that image is not going to be included. There was a broader editing as well. Certain times of periods of filming didn't feel right to bring into the final video work. So I guess what I'm saying is that I tried to allow myself to be haunted through the project with a sense of trust that within the very clear parameters of no bodies and no boats and no nostalgic images, to allow, as I said, myself to be haunted through the project with a sense of trust. And finally, what advice would you give to artists just starting out? Well, I mentioned just before a really important piece of information that was given to me as a bit of a throwaway, I think. It was in one of those studio visits at the art schools that you have with your mentors where you discuss the current work that you're making. And that has always stayed with me. 
So I would reiterate that, that if you're working on things that take a long time, work simultaneously on things that take a short time. And if you're working on a large scale, work simultaneously on small scale. I think that's really good just to keep the brain as soft as possible in thinking about things. But I would also suggest developing practical strategies for keeping going. It's not always easy to sustain the practice and it's the sustaining of the practice which is really important, the staying with it and just finding ways to keep going. I mean, sometimes we all know this, there are times when the amount of time available to devote to our practice ebbs because of other life matters and then there are times when we can see an opportunity to spend some more time on the practice and making work. So I think those two things are things that I would really encourage people to meditate on, you know, working at both ends of all spectrums and finding ways to keep going. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure and honour to work with you over the last couple of years on this amazing project. So thanks once again. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for listening to episode 12 of our conversation series. Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery is the region's major cultural facility and is supported by Mornington Peninsula Shire and other partners. Visit mprg.mornpen.vic.gov.au to find out about our latest exhibitions and events. Our 2018 podcast program is supported by the Gordon Darling Foundation. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode.